0: and Candid Conversations. I am your host, Nico Perino, and a quick note before we begin today's episode. We are coming up on the 100th episode of So to Speak. It's Hard to Believe. We started this podcast back in April or May of 2016, and we've been publishing every other week for three and a half years since. So I want to do something special for the 100th episode of So to Speak. And to do so, I've assembled a distinguished panel of past popular, so to speak, guests to address the state of free speech in America today and how it compares to decades ago or even a couple of years ago. Where do things stand? Are they getting better? Are they getting worse? Is it a mixed bag? So who is on this panel? Well, Jonathan Rauch of the Brookings Institution He was our first podcast guest ever back in 2016, and he has agreed to come back on the show. He is also the author of Kindly Inquisitors, which, if you listen to this podcast, you know I think is one of the best books ever written on freedom of expression. It was written in the early 1990s following the fatwa Issued against Salman Rushdie for his publication of the Satanic Verses. So, Jonathan Rauch will be joining us. Also, joining us for the 100th episode of the podcast will be Nadine Strawson. She is a recurring guest on the show, of course, and the former president of the American Civil Liberties Union and current professor at New York Law School. Joining them will be Bob Corn Revere. He is a partner at Davis Wright Tremaine and a recurring guest on the podcast. And, of course, Rounding out the panel, we couldn't do it without him, is my boss and the president and CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education, Greg Lukianoff. So we will be getting together on December 4th between 3 and 5 p.m. at FIRE's D.C. headquarters to record this episode about the state of free expression in America. And we are going to try and live stream the episode. So stay tuned to, so to speak, social media accounts, Twitter and Facebook, where I'll be making announcements about the live stream and you'll probably be able to find links or should be able to find links to the live stream there if we are able to do it. But we are also considering doing an in-studio audience at FIRE's DC headquarters, a very small one. Uh, This isn't a sure thing yet. Again, the recording would be December 4th between 3 and 5 p.m. at our DC headquarters. If you're interested in attending a possible in-studio recording of so to speak at that time, please shoot me an email at so to speak at the fire.org. Again, that is so to speak at the fire.org. Let me know you're interested and if there is enough interest, we will try to make it happen. Again, this podcast is going to be recorded on December 4th for a possible live stream possible in studio audience, but it will be published through our normal channels. So through your podcast feed, if you use Google Play or Apple Podcasts, you will get it there on December 12th, which is our regularly scheduled time. For the podcasts every other Thursday. So stay tuned for more information about that. Okay, now on to today's episode. We are speaking with Professor Timothy Zick. He is the John Marshall Professor of Government and Citizenship at William and Mary Law School. He is also the author of a new book, which is the subject of today's conversation. That book is called The First Amendment in the Trump Era, and it was just recently published. But a little bit more about Professor Timothy Zick before we dive right in. Before he was at William & Mary, he was at St. John's University School of Law. And he got his law degree from Georgetown University Law Center, where he graduated at the top of his class. Quite the honor, quite the accomplishment. But before he was at Georgetown University Law Center, he got his bachelor's degree from my alma mater, Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana, a place the both of us, as you will hear, hold very dearly. So without further ado, let's jump right in with Professor Timothy Zick. Professor, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. So I, I have to ask you about Indiana before we, we talk about your book. Overrated, underrated, how'd you like your years there?
1: Oh, I love my years uh, in Bloomington. Cool. Um, I think, if anything, it's underrated. Uh, so I had a great time there.
0: Yeah. It's a lot different even from when I graduated, I hadn't, I graduated in 2012 and hadn't been back since then. And now they've got new buildings up, uh, they're tearing up the uh, old baseball field. And so it's, it's changed even since then. I couldn't imagine what it, how much it's changed since 1988,
1: but. Yeah. It seems to be the way it goes. Same thing with uh, Georgetown Law Center, very different campus than when I went there.
0: Yeah. Life moves on, right? <sighs> yes. So let's talk about your book now and jump right in. So as with so much in the Trump era, we need to look at, or we should look at and consider rhetoric versus reality and whether there's any deviation between the two. Uh, You often hear from people talking about the Trump administration that, well, yeah, he might be chummy rhetorically with the Russians. His administration has done as much as the Obama administration when it comes to placing sanctions on bad actors. Um, Now, when it comes to the First Amendment, I think Trump's uh, disdain for some of our First Amendment values is well-documented, are well-documented, including his desire to take away citizenship from people who burn the flag, his uh, concerns over the NFL protests, while they might not implicate First Amendment considerations in the traditional sense, certainly implicate First Amendment values, his goal to open up or his desire to open up the libel laws, and of course his, his attacks on the free press, You know, his, his quote, war on the press or calling them the enemy of the people. A lot of this stuff that I just mentioned happens over tweet. So I wanted to present it to you, ask you how much of that goes beyond the tweet? How much of it is actually an attack on fundamental First Amendment values and how they are practiced every day?
1: Yeah, I I think uh you know a lot of what uh, Trump traffics in with regard to, you know, free uh, press and speech as with everything else is rhetorical. Um but I would uh make the point that the rhetoric has uh, implications for what you call first amendment values even if he's not able to have the Department of Justice or any prosecutor put someone in jail for burning the flag or denaturalize someone or Um, you know, bankrupt companies that he views as critical of himself or the administration. It it has a sort of cumulative effect on um, what I call the culture of dissent and what you again referred to as First Amendment values. So the damage can be done even if someone's rights aren't violated or even directly implicated. And I, I try to draw that distinction in the book because some people will say, well, it's just him talking or tweeting. It doesn't really mean anything. Uh, more commonly, you'll hear people say, well, don't take him literally or seriously or both. Um, but again, it's, it's dangerous rhetoric uh, to have, uh, especially when it, it seems to appeal uh, to a broad, uh, relatively broad segment of the population. So if you, if you actually poll people about, for example, the press, you know, should the government have more control over the press, um, some polls show a pretty strong majority saying yes. Um, and, and is that
0: a new trend? Is that n- a new trend? Is it uh, when you compare it to past polls on the same question or similar questions? Do you see movement there?
1: I think there has been some movement in that regard. I mean, the, the press has been sort of declining in the public uh, public mind uh, for some time, right? So it's, we're long past the sort of heyday of the press, but. You know, when people are specifically asked, should the government have, you know, some means of punishing press for, um, you know, publishing things that are inaccurate, Um, I I think the numbers on that have definitely ticked up. And the president was very transparent about that being part of his agenda. He actually said to one uh, interviewer, I forget who it was, it might have been Leslie Stahl, "Um, look, part of my purpose in doing all this rhetorical work is to undermine the credibility of the press. Uh, And in fact, my other critics, Um, part of what's different about the Trump era is that transparency, that sort of out in the open disregard and sort of even telling people what your agenda is uh, in an effort, I think, to normalize it. Now, it's not all been just rhetoric. You said, to what extent does it go beyond rhetoric? Well, there are a couple of examples. Um, The administration has pulled the press credentials, as you you likely know, uh, of at least two people um, seemingly based on their critical coverage of the administration. Now, you may not have a right to have a press pass, but once that's provided, you have some right, the courts have said, to due process with regard to its revocation and maybe even First Amendment rights, although the courts that have addressed it haven't yet uh, gone uh, so far. Uh, and the other example is you know, he blocked uh, several critics from his Twitter page And Mm -hmm. the Court of Appeals in New York said that violates the First Amendment rights uh, of your critics. Uh, He may have also had conversations with the Postmaster General about, you know, increasing the postal rates for Amazon because of its connection to Jeff Bezos, who, of course, is, you know, the Washington Post and is a, a frequent critic of the president. So I think there's not just rhetoric, even though the rhetoric itself is troubling. There are are examples of where the president has gone beyond that, and the administration has.
0: Yeah, and I want to ask you, because you brought it up, about the social media blocking uh, case. Uh, I I had a conversation with Eugene Volokh uh, probably two years ago at this point, in which he's a very forward thinker about a lot of First Amendment Concerns, and we were talking about virtual reality and how many people in the future might be living in a virtual reality of their own choosing, and many politicians might hold town halls in a virtual reality setting. And I asked him or posited the hypothetical that there might be some politicians who would not allow you into their virtual reality, and therefore you wouldn't have the same access as someone else might have to your virtual reality, and and whether that raised any First Amendment concerns. and And Eugene um, was skeptical of that. Um, and when this first, this Twitter case came up, uh, I was thinking, well, isn't Twitter a sort of virtual reality in this, not in the same sense, but in a similar sense, you create your own space for communication. Um, uh, but Eugene holds a, holds a different position on, on the, on the Twitter front. Uh, you said that people don't have the right to a press pass. Uh, I want, I wanted to get your thinking about having the right to have access to, um, a, a, uh, a politician's Twitter account. I'm assuming you're, you you think that was a good decision there from the court of appeals.
1: I, I do think it's a good decision. Um, but it's, it's so based on the facts, right? Mm-hmm. It's so fact intensive, you know, how does the president use that account? Um, you know, what standards is he applying to, to block people from it? Um, Is it even a government account? I mean, Trump had the account before he was even a candidate uh, for the presidency, much less um, the president-elect. And so like many things in that context where you have questions about, well, what's a public forum? You know, is this under governmental control?
0: And you have a whole chapter about that in your book.
1: I do, yeah. And I think, you know, this this is sort of as the, the Supreme Court itself has said, the modern public square. It says, well, it's still important to have these open spaces out in public where people can protest. But increasingly, this is where people gather. This is where they speak. And I think there's, of course, some truth to that. Um, And, you know, but for the very specific facts of, you know, Trump's use of his Twitter account to sort of promote public policy, to announce hirings and firings, uh, to do all of those things, it would be a much more difficult case uh, to demonstrate that your First Amendment rights had been violated. But he really did seem to open up this space, and if you accept that it's controlled by a government official, he then excluded people solely because he didn't like what they had to say about him or his policies. Now, I think where Jean uh, is coming from, you know, if, if you did the same thing uh, and you set up a campaign rally, right? You rented a space, for example, and had a campaign rally. Couldn't you exclude people uh, from attending, or couldn't you have some requirements? Uh, for getting into that event. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a tricky question. Um, And I think, you know, it's again, it's very fact-intensive and very fact-dependent. I think there was just something so unique about the way this president uses social media, the way he controls access to it. And I think a fair amount of just judicial offense at a public official who just could not engage with citizens simply because he just found what they said offensive or overly critical. Um, but, but I agree it's a difficult question. It's one I, I was glad to see the Second Circuit reach that decision, largely because to the extent government officials are going to do this in the future, and they're going to interact with their constituents in digital uh, fora, it's going to be important to have some kind of access rules. Um, otherwise, a very important space for interacting with um, elected officials is going to be unavailable. Um, to large segments of the population. I do think that is problematic.
0: Yeah, and we saw that case, the precedent in that case applied elsewhere when Alexandria Mm -hmm. Ocasio-Cortez had a lawsuit filed against her for the blocking of her critics on Twitter, and she actually, I think, unblocked them and apologized for doing so uh, as a result of that that case and then uh, the subsequent lawsuit against her. I don't know if it was actually a lawsuit or a threatened lawsuit, um, but... Uh, the Knight Institute up at Columbia University was involved there, I believe. I want to ask you about the excesses of the free press, because you you mentioned them in your book. What do you see as the excesses of the free press that you think might uh, lend credibility to some of the arguments against what it does, but wouldn't justify the restricting of it?
1: Yeah, I, I think the press has, you know, always been sort of problematic institution in the sense that it's always had excesses, right? It has always, um, you know, gone beyond a certain point and, and harmed individual reputation.
0: Yellow journalism is centuries old.
1: Of course. Uh, and so there's there's nothing really uh, new to that argument. It, it, it's quite distinctive, though, to say that the press is the enemy of the American people, uh, that you should treat journalists who publish things that are Let's say incorrect or even false, as somehow unpatriotic or, um, you know again, enemies of democracy. Uh, that has serious impact. I mean people forget that there was a newsroom, I think, in Boston that was shot up uh, by someone who intoned some of those very same thoughts and beliefs, enemies of the people, enemies of the people. It's repeated so often um, you know that people come to see the press as nothing other than excess. Of course, the press makes errors. Of course, that's why we have rules for defamation uh, that subject them to some liability. If they act, for example, in, in Trump's case, they report on him with actual malice, knowledge mm-hmm. of falsity or reckless disregard for truth or falsity. Um, and I try in the book to, to give a sort of balanced account of the press in the sense that, you know, again, even the Supreme Court, Recognize long, long ago, in the earliest cases, that the press does sometimes engage in bad acts or misbehavior or unpro- acts unprofessionally. That does not mean that you throw out the institution altogether. Um, you take into account the values that that institution brings and that press rights in general bring uh, to American democracy, just as you say we don't throw out the free speech guarantee because some speakers cross certain lines. Um, So I think it's important to have, um, as I say, sort of a balanced sense of the press, both the costs and benefits of having a free and independent um, press. In the modern era, I mean, you know, it's ironic for Trump to complain about the press since it gave him so much free media Mm -hmm. and so much attention that I think was uncritical during the campaign and the lead up to uh, the election. And I think Part of the problem with the press is, you know, given its you know financial uh, structure now, its sort of financial struggles and the fracturing of the media landscape, is that it tends to play along with this game of you know instant instant conflict, right? Where's the next pop-up uh, conflict coming from? Well, it's coming from the president's Twitter account, and so you know the cycle continues. Um, That's not true of all media by any means. There are certainly examples of media that try to uh, not participate in that endeavor, that try not to succumb to um, the sort of revenues that outrage can bring you, uh, for lack of a a better phrase. But, I mean, it's increasingly common. And so if we're going to fix the problem, part of the fix has to be how the media engages with um, not just this president, but with politics more generally. And, and it's not just the media either. Um, it's the people uh, who demand this sort of infotainment.
0: Yeah. I want to turn now to libel and defamation, because as I mentioned earlier, the president talks about opening up the libel laws. And I'm actually watching a Netflix documentary uh, about President Donald Trump's career as a businessman going back to the 70s. Uh, and in that, he, it references a number of lawsuits, uh, defamation lawsuits filed by the president uh, against people who were not just critical of his business, but reporting on his business. In one case, there was a uh, someone who did financial reporting who talked about the, uh, the lack of financial viability for success of one of his casinos, and uh, the then businessman Donald Trump filed a uh, defamation lawsuit against him. Uh, and put pressure. Oh, I, I don't know if it was against him or against the institution for which he was working. Uh, but he ended up getting fired, and then the president rehired him to be one of his guys. Uh, it was a very odd turn of events. But it's, it it suggests a uh, comfortableness with uh, trying to use defamation lawsuits, even though even if you're not successful, uh, and using them as a kind of a weapon to, to silence people. Uh, I wanted to get your take as to whether there's any teeth. In that case, aside from the rhetoric, or whether the rhetoric might bleed into some reality, I see there's a movement uh, within conservative circles now to roll back New York Times versus Sullivan. Uh, I don't know if that's new, but it's definitely something I'm hearing more about in recent years.
1: Yeah, I mean it's an old playbook uh, using you know civil defamation laws and criminal ones too, and when those were more prominent, to silence critics Um, and you can look back further, but you can certainly look to the civil rights era when southern officials routinely filed defamation lawsuits against um, reporters, typically from the north, who tried to report on the civil rights movement and the reaction to it uh, in, in southern locations. Um, and a lot of those lawsuits were, frankly, successful before Times versus Sullivan, as you mentioned, uh, in silencing critics um, by imposing, you know, large civil damage awards, punitive damages that the speaker or the publisher simply could not uh, afford. So to that extent, you know, it makes sense for someone who does not like dissent or criticism, uh, who bristles at, you know, any any publication of it, to use that tool to try and silence uh, critics. Um, What's ironic, again, about uh, uh, President Trump is that if he actually were successful in getting the turnaround he wants in opening up the libel laws, he himself would be sued uh, as much as any American because he, 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 you know, he defames uh, lots of people, public officials, private figures, um, and the like, right? So um, I don't think he really wants that. I don't think it's a serious engagement with an otherwise very serious question whether New York Times versus Sullivan um, improperly or incorrectly balanced free speech and press and reputational interest. I think like everything else for this president, it's instrumental. Uh, What can I get from uh, a libel standard? I can sue my critics uh, without seeing the other side of of himself being liable for defamation. It is a serious issue. There has long been criticism of New York Times versus Sullivan. Um, uh, Richard Epstein at, at Chicago, I think, has written, a powerful argument uh, against uh, the case and others have as well and as you mentioned uh Justice Thomas um has publicly now come out uh, as an originalist he says and thinks we should rethink uh the line of cases that begins with New York Times versus Sullivan um that's a serious academic and legal uh, dispute and it's worth having mm-hmm. um but again, it's it's not, I think, what the president is aiming for. And when he says open up the libel laws, of course, uh, the federal government doesn't control those laws. Those are state laws. The Supreme Court, of course, could uh, issue a decision that cuts back on Sullivan or even reverses it. Um, but
0: it would still then fall f- fall on the states to actually pass those laws. Well, if the them?
1: Supreme Court decided, then it would control those state laws. Um, mm. So to the extent they're contrary to the court's decision, then they would be invalid. Um, I don't think that's likely. I don't know of any other justice on the court that's publicly, you know, taking the position that Times versus Sullivan should be.
0: Well, there hasn't been a defamation case in many years before the court, I don't believe. Correct? That's
1: true. That's true. And it certainly, you know, could take one, uh, you know. I know
0: the National Review, is, uh, has the man case, is up. Um, they, haven't, they haven't granted cert to it, but I, I know it's being considered right now.
1: Yeah, and and Thomas came out and and dissented from a denial of cert. So there's certainly cases that are being brought to the court for its review, and and so far it has not uh, taken one, hasn't granted cert.
0: And what's your opinion on New York Times versus Sullivan?
1: I mean, I think New York Times versus Sullivan uh, is such an iconic decision. It it's certainly a product of its time. As I said, you know the the defamation weapon was being used to essentially suppress reporting on uh, the most important movement of the time which is the civil rights movement. Um, Do I fear that uh, reputational damage is going uncompensated especially for uh, public officials? I I think my concern is is a little bit different and that is it might be deterring people from getting into politics. um, The level of, of scrutiny uh, the extent to which you know uh, everything about a president or a presidential candidate is deemed newsworthy and of public interest, maybe that uh, has some kind of deterrent effect. But it's such a, a, a necessary tool as I think the civil rights movement showed um, to prevent government officials from suppressing dissent. And I and I think if you pay attention to this administration, um, it moves you in the direction I think of of, of more support. Sullivan rather than less. In other words, that the court got it right.
0: So we've talked a little bit about rhetoric versus reality, and we'll talk more about that. But I want to get your sense of the choices the Trump administration has made for judges and how those bear on the First Amendment. Uh, We can start, of course, with uh, Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh uh, and their First Amendment record. I want to get your take on what you think of that. And then also, just as a whole, what you think of the, the choices for the lower courts.
1: Yeah, I mean it could have, you know, a very big impact obviously. Um, you know, to the extent that you are, you know, putting lots of judges on the federal courts and they're going to hear first amendment cases, speech cases, press cases. Um, that impact is 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 pretty obvious. Um, I don't know a lot about the first amendment, you know, background or decision uh, decision making of uh, the lower court appointees, but I had occasion to look at uh, then Judge Kavanaugh as he was coming up for his confirmation hearing and I I wrote something for Scotus blog about his jurisprudence. And again it's it's always difficult to tell from a sample of, you know, eight cases mm-hmm. um you know what a person or a judge um you know what their approach to the First Amendment really is. But he seemed very solidly in, in, in support of um uh, freedom of speech, whether it was, you know, a powerful speaker like a corporation Or sort of a lowly petitioner or pamphleteer and there were cases in his jurisprudence from from both of those columns I I do think that to the extent that Gorsuch and Kavanaugh are going to have an impact it's most likely going to be in the area of commercial speech and the speech rights of corporations including in campaign finance and at least insofar as I can tell with Justice Kavanaugh uh, he would be very much opposed Restrictions on uh, speech in those two areas. Um, it's a little difficult to tell just what standard he'd apply in the commercial speech context, um, but he was clearly opposed to say net neutrality rules. Mm-hmm. Um, that that he sees, you know, corporate editors should be treated just like any other editor, and they have First Amendment rights, and you can't compel them to you know carry certain things or or not. Um, So I think it's going forward is going to have a a very significant impact on the court uh, in those areas that I mentioned and and certainly also in the lower court.
0: And beyond the direction they had already been trending, because it's my understanding of the case law that over the past 30 years or so, we've been looking at cases that have expanded uh, protections, First Amendment protections for commercial speech. And then, of course, uh, within the campaign finance sphere as well.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I think it solidifies the majority uh, of justices who would be opposed to, on First Amendment grounds, uh, restrictions in campaign finance and commercial speech cases. Um, So, yeah, I think that's right, that what you have there is no longer the ambiguity of will they or won't they, uh, the sort of Kennedy swing justice calculus. But rather, I think a pretty clear indication that for commercial speech, it, it's likely to rise to the level of fully protected speech and not be subject to you know, some different standard.
0: Yeah, a different level of scrutiny. Pardon? A, a different level of scrutiny.
1: Uh, I think the full uh, protection Cold. of the First Amendment will, will likely attach to commercial speech if the court uh, goes in that direction and takes cases in that area, which I think it's pretty likely to do. And then there are cases about whether you can compel corporations to disclose Mm -hmm. certain information to the public. And those cases are likely to percolate up as well. And I would think that the court would be, as a majority anyway, opposed on First Amendment grounds to a lot of those sorts of requirements. So I think it more or less solidifies something that, as you say, was already a trend. I mean, you can see from the Sorrell case uh, where Kennedy was still on the court. Um, It seemed like the majority was inching its way toward commercial speeches entitled to full First Amendment protection, even if it didn't go all the way there.
0: I want to talk now about First Amendment values, which we referenced earlier, and and in particular in the context of the NFL protests, the the players who took a knee, for example, during the national anthem or protests in other uh, ways on the field um, that they would argue was non-disruptive to the actual core purpose uh, of their participation. What sort of damage do you think that President Trump's outspokenness on that issue has done to First Amendment values or to free speech values? Um, And I mean, do you really feel it? it's 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 a free speech value or First Amendment value. I mean, he sent Mike Pence to, I believe it was an Indianapolis Colts game I could be wrong about that, to attend for 30 seconds, see the the protest on field and then leave, presumably just to make a statement of it.
1: Right. I mean, I I think that episode um, in its entirety sort of implicates a very core principle that I call in the book anti-orthodoxy. So essentially, that means the government lacks the power to compel us uh, to believe something to exhibit belief in something we don't believe in, uh, to mouth the words the government would like us to mouth, or in this case, uh, to react to a symbol, uh, whether it's the flag or the Pledge of Allegiance or the national anthem, in the way the government demands. And so if you think about that principle, it has deep roots in uh, the compulsion of school children in Barnett uh, to salute the American flag a certain way and to recite the Pledge of Allegiance court held that that was invalid under the First Amendment. It first upheld it, and then not too long after that, said it's wholly inconsistent with this core principle of anti-orthodoxy. No official high or petty, the court said, has the power to compel belief with regard to religion, politics, or other matters of public uh, concern. So, In the context of, you know, flag burners, the same principle, right? Uh, President Trump says we should jail them, we should denaturalize them. Um, You know, you can't protect the flag from dissent in that way and jail people for, in essence, disrespecting or desecrating the flag. The court has said that, too, uh, in a case called Texas versus Johnson. Um, What people have said to me is, well, the president didn't actually do anything. You know, he, mm-hmm. he didn't he didn't actually exert any coercive power over the NFL players. And I mean, to some extent, that's true. But he did sort of pressure the owners and you know, make a lot of public statements about, you know, the antitrust exemptions. And there's sort of a veiled threat there, maybe even a not so veiled threat. And lo and behold, the policy started to change. Um, so he did step up to a line between, you know, government speech or even the speech of a citizen and using the course of power of government, which would implicate the First Amendment. But my concern with it is broader than that. It's an example, just one of many, where uh, the president is sort of whipping up the populace to to simply not accept that there's more than one way to show patriotism or respect. Mm -hmm. Um, he, He didn't even, to my mind, even bother to try to understand that it was a social protest. Um, It didn't disrupt the game. You didn't even have to watch it if you didn't want to. Um, And yet we had this sort of vitriolic response um, after the president weighed in. It became a wedge issue, like everything else in the Trump era. Um, And people started to burn their Nike wear because of Colin Kaepernick's uh, connection to this uh, social protest, equal justice protest even burning their shoes while they were still in them. <laughs>
0: Which doesn't sound safe.
1: <laughs> no, just sort of collectively losing their mind. And I've always had trouble accessing the objection in the sense that I've had neighbors and people tell me, well, it ruined the game for me. And I, I say to them, well, how can that be if it didn't disrupt the game It had nothing to do with the game? It's just the mere fact of you know that form of expression is so triggering or so offensive that it shouldn't exist. People were asked, should that be criminalized? A great many of them might say yes.
0: Yes, I I imagine so. I was talking with a family member of mine, my my dad. Uh, My dad played in the NFL. Uh, And we were actually in Scotland at the time having a drink by the golf course. Uh, Not a golfer, but we were near St. Andrews, so I figured I should give it a whirl. (laughs) And we were having a drink, and we were talking about this controversy. Uh, And his argument was that, well, sports at that level is entertainment. Um, A lot of that is informed by his experience playing in the NFL. And that the national anthem is part of that entertaining experience. It's a very moving part. Uh, to kind of get the game together, to get people on the same foot, and that uh, the league has a right uh, to control how it's, in this case, performers um, uh, treat that opening number. Uh, I disagreed with him about that, uh, but I think if you you take his point that it's all entertainment and you're putting on a show and that's an important part of the show, then maybe – he has a point. Uh, but I think a lot of people like sports for a, a lot of different reasons. And a lot of people view sports not as entertainment. If, if it was just entertainment, people probably wouldn't bet on it because the outcome would be determined. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, I understand that argument, even if I don't agree with it.
1: I do too. And I, and I have to say, you know, when, I, when I'm teaching the First Amendment, you know, if, if this issue comes up, I always say, be careful. Uh, as to where the First Amendment applies. It doesn't apply to private actors. It doesn't apply to social media. It, and in some sense, you're right. The League could determine what its policy ought to be. We could question whether it should follow free speech values and principles. We wouldn't be talking about the First Amendment rights of players. Those aren't in play. But when the President of the United States uh, not only weighs in, but suggests you know, some sort of coercive endeavor to get people to put their hands over their hearts and stand in silent reflection like he wants them to, then I think it clearly does sort of cross a line into anti-Orthodoxy protections. Like this is something we should be concerned about. And if it's just entertainment, then what's it doing in politics? Why is this such a political wedge issue? Well, in part because the president's base is energized by it right? And, and question why? Why why are they so energized by it? Is it respect for the flag? Is it who's doing the protesting? Um, you know, it can't be the manner of their protest, which again, isn't noisy or disruptive. So it's almost like you're saying, well, we'll protest, but not like that. And and he's done other things, as I pointed out in the book, you know, less seriously, but he says, well, you should all say Merry Christmas to one another. And then and only then will America be great. Uh, well, sort of stoking the the false war on Christmas narrative.
0: Yeah, he talks, or I guess he, he tweets, you know, about the the burning the flag. You, you suggested that he 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 floats these like trial balloons. He doesn't, in most cases, outright advocate for something, but he says perhaps loss of citizenship or a year in jail for burning the flag, perhaps. Uh, right. Which uh, could give him cover if he if he you know went too far in someone's eyes. But I in in this, these sorts of controversies where we so we do free speech on campus work here at the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education. We often have very strong heated internal discussions about what to do when the president of a university or uh, even some lower administrative official comes out very hard on a, a on a speaker on campus, in particular a student. So let's say you're a student group and you invite a speaker to campus and the president of the university sends in All community email condemning your inviting that speaker to campus we've seen this happen at Fordham for example Um, and kind of ostracizes you for having made that invitation from the community because they they told the whole community about it and 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 in telling them about it said that our values as an institution uh, are contrary to this group of students values or the speakers values Uh, now you know they have the right to make that, that make that argument, especially at a private university at Fordham, but we've seen it at public universities as well. I mean, the First Amendment doesn't forbid government officials from having an opinion, uh, but at the same time, it casts a pall of orthodoxy uh, on the campus that I think implicates First Amendment values in the same way that the level of vitriol or criticism that a public official, in this case, the president, uh, might. Uh, direct at certain speakers exercising uh, their expressive rights or their expressive values. So yeah,
1: I think that's right. I, th- I think he's he's a very loquacious uh, government speaker. Uh, in many cases, it isn't that he's actively trying to violate someone's right as a regulator of speech. It's that he is weighing in in a way that is counter to First Amendment values, norms, and principles. And presidents weigh in... Uh, on uh, free speech issues a lot. President Obama weighed in on the video um, that caused all the consternation over uh, Benghazi. Mm-hmm. And what he said to the UN was was more or less a defense of the traditional First Amendment line. We don't ban that because he explained. And President Trump could do the same thing. He could use his voice um, to explain why, for example, and this is the administration's position, hate speech, so-called, cannot be banned uh, on a public university campus as such. But instead of doing that, uh, he has his attorney general, then Jeff Sessions, and, and he himself talking about snowflakes, uh, denigrating students who have different views than they do, and using this sort of bully pulpit to bully. Um, so I, I think, you know, how you use your government speech voice Uh, is a really important part of the conversation. Uh, And even in places where I I tend to agree with that traditional approach, in other words, you know, content neutrality should be the rule, Mm -hmm. um, I see the president sort of making that, like everything else, a partisan principle and not a free speech
0: principle. Well, I I should ask you, because we've talked a lot about the First Amendment and First Amendment values. Uh, I'm a lot of this podcast is devoted to talking about cases and the First Amendment, but the First Amendment rests on a philosophical bed uh, that you should have to justify first before resorting to a First Amendment argument, uh, at least in in moral suasion. Uh, otherwise, it's circular. you know, this speech is protected because the First Amendment protects it, and you know it doesn't it shouldn't convince anyone. Uh, you wrote a book a while back, I believe, advocating for First Amendment values beyond our borders, correct? Right. Why do you think these values, and, some, and often when we're having First Amendment arguments or free speech arguments with people, they say, well, the United States is the only country, the only developed country uh, that extends these protections to its citizens. And it's often used as an argument for why we should adopt the standards of uh, other countries. So it falls on us as Americans to justify why we do things differently. Why do you think, and I know this is a broad question, but uh, Other countries should adopt the way we do things and not vice versa.
1: Gotcha. So this is the book, uh, The Cosmopolitan First Amendment, which was a a pre-Trump publication, um, most of which, you know, he's sort of done the opposite with regard to free speech, as I proposed in the book. But just to be clear, what, what I was proposing was for American citizens who speak across borders, the First Amendment ought to apply with full force. We have lots of border restrictions on speech that need to be looked at. Um, When we're abroad, American citizens, um, our government should not be stopping us from gathering information and learning things about other countries. But I was careful to say that when you are in another country, you are subject to their rules Mm -hmm. and their free speech standards. So I didn't go so far as to say, and in fact, I was very careful to sort of step back from...
0: And I should say I haven't read this book, so thank you for correcting me. (laughs) Okay,
1: well, I mean, you might get that from the title and say, well, I I am offering an expansive view of the free speech clause as the U.S. courts have seen it, because they've been very reluctant to acknowledge First Amendment rights, you know, with regard to anything that touches on or crosses uh, U.S. borders. It's one of those gaps in our, our sort of First Amendment jurisprudence that I thought was worth looking at, um, but you're absolutely right. Our standards are so exceptional with regard to defamation and, and hate speech, so-called, and lots of other things that you can't and shouldn't endeavor to impose them in other places. Um,
0: but what you're seeing, and, and I mean, this, the, there can be an update to you, Brooke. I for, I don't know what year your book came out, but often now the, we talk about the public square being social media. Social media companies are restricting what people can say based on laws overseas. I mean, if you want a truly global platform, that platform needs to take into consideration the laws of other countries, which include hate speech laws or um, you know, anti-blasphemy laws.
1: Exactly. And I, I think that's the, the, the place that social media companies find themselves in. And, and one of the most difficult things to navigate when you have communications technology that, that's not bound by geography, um, you have to comply essentially with the laws of all nations.
0: Or the most restrictive one.
1: Or perhaps the most restrictive one.
0: Especially when you're looking at countries like like India, which I think uh, forbids or it's, they can punish um, profanity. Uh, and that's, that's a country with many more people than the United States. It's a much bigger market and, in a, and in a very fast developing one at that.
1: Exactly. Right. And so I, I do sort of I try to address some of those questions in that book. Um, but my primary, you know, push was to sort of, you know, think about the First Amendment as not stopping at the water's edge, at least for its citizens in a globalized world and a digitized culture. Um, and if I could accomplish just that, I, I'd be happy. And of course, what I hadn't anticipated is you know, disinformation campaigns mm-hmm. and foreign influence on U.S. domestic elections. Uh, so when I go back and read it, I'm like, well, I <laughs> maybe I have to rethink. Uh, at least some of the because I took some more aggressive positions with regard to the speech of foreign nationals and whether or not they should have any say at all in domestic politics. Um, and, you know, that's whether what, they can't,
0: whether they should or whether they can. I mean, are you are you thinking they
1: cannot now because in certain in certain respects, they can't contribute to campaigns and those sorts of things. But they can have and, an opinion
0: about a campaign. Oh, certainly. Yeah, yeah. Y- okay.
1: exactly. And I was just wondering about whether even that kind of restriction made sense in terms of a political community. Um, and now I'd have to factor in, you know, well, here, here's something you need to think about in terms of the way information and disinformation is distributed from foreign regimes.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very interesting question, and I'm just kind of thinking about it on the spot here, because obviously the contribution to campaigns, uh, you could have, or, or to super PACs, for example, you can have very deep pockets if you have a uh, foreign government <laughs> bankrolling you, uh, perhaps. Uh, but when it comes to actually just speaking out about a campaign, presenting information or arguments about a candidate, uh, I've always been reluctant to um, get on board with campaign finance restrictions because I didn't want to. Uh, you know, there's something that stands, of course, between um, the the candidate and the office, and that's the voter who needs to be convinced uh, that someone is best. And so, you know, the opinion of someone and that opinion being expressed. I mean, someone you need to convince someone else. That your opinion. Is valid. So I've always kind of been weary of restrictions like that. Even if it's on social, I mean, social media, private social media companies can can do what they want, uh, but the message has no value if 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 someone doesn't agree with it.
1: Right, and that's of course the new frontier, right? Uh-huh. Which is social media speech content regulation, frankly, uh-huh. and you know how, how that's going to play out in light of you know not just concerns about elections and, and foreign influence, but um, you know how we domestically communicate with each other um, online, and you know a, a lot of that is in the in the hands, you know, for better or worse, of, of private operators, uh, at least as we're speaking, yeah. and it's tremendous power that they now have.
0: I want to turn now, because we're at 45 minutes, and if you have five or 10 more minutes, uh, I'd love to address the, the campus speech arena, of course, uh, our bailiwick here, and something that the Trump administration has taken a bit of interest in. Um, you know, we're looking at here uh, rhetoric versus action. Uh, the, the administration right now is going through a Title IX process, uh, regulatory process, that could Eliminate a lot of the troublesome speech codes that we've seen, uh, troublesome and fires opinion that we've seen on campus, uh, particularly pertaining to harassment, overbroad and vague harassment policies uh, that aren't driven by uh, the Davis standard from the late 1990s, uh, but are rather um, driven by standards that were promulgated in the last decade or so, um, you know. Especially in the, the sexual misconduct arena, d- identifying sexual misconduct as any unwelcome conduct of a sexual nature, including speech, uh, which we think is overbroad, which could, if taken to its most extreme, ban a Sarah Silverman joke on campus because there's no, uh, you know, objectively offensive standard there. So we th- in, that, in that sense, if what we saw in the um, draft regulations last year make it in, their way into the final regulations, which we're expecting any week now, that could be a huge victory. Uh for free speech, in our opinion. Uh, we, he also had the executive order a couple of months ago, which is, you know, it's hard to know what to make of it. Um, uh, but at the same time, we we had a controversy at University of Alabama last week where the student government sent out a poorly worded email telling people not to engage in genetic in any disruptive behavior during the Alabama LSU game this past weekend, in which LSU won, uh, Mm -hmm. and which the president was going to attend. And many people took that, and I think justifiably so, when you're talking about vague terms, uh, as meaning people were forbidden from protesting and could possibly lose their seats at the game if they did protest. Now, the University of Alabama student government quickly backtracked on that and said, no, that's not what we meant. We just don't want people to get in fights and yada, 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 yada. But before we knew any of that, President Trump had retweeted (laughs) (laughs) That they had banned any disruptive behavior uh, at the games. Presumably uh, giving his thumbs up to tossing out protesters or people who booed him at the game, which we know is something we've seen at past appearances at sporting events. So, uh, again, inconsistency uh, on many fronts.
1: Yeah, or ambiguity.
0: Yeah, at the very least.
1: You know, as I say in the in the book, on uh, I, I do have some discussion of campus speech in the context, particularly of particular hate speech. Hate speech, yes. Um, you know, I I applaud the administration's you know legal filings in campus speech cases where it says, well, you you can't have a bullying commission or whatever you want to call it uh, that goes around and and you know relies on vague and overbroad standards or content based distinctions. Uh, you know, to regulate or chill uh, student speech or faculty speech or what have you. Um, you know, my problem with the administration's position on campus speech is that, again, it's it sort of politicized it. and the executive order is a great example. I mean, talk about a collective sigh uh, or shrug, you know, from a public university standpoint. Um, it just says you should follow the law. And, you know, it doesn't really say anything. The real um, the real problem with that executive order is it's a spending condition. Follow the First Amendment or lose millions and millions of dollars in federal funding. Now you've got my attention. How are you going to use that power? How is it going to be determined whether you know speech has been um, uh, speech rights have been violated? And we don't really have an answer to that.
0: No, we kind of punted on that to the agencies. Kind of. uh,
1: there, there's a case out of North Carolina that suggests something very troubling. There's a legislator, a state legislator, who contacted the education department who complained that a Middle Eastern studies program was not sufficiently attentive to the rights of Christian minorities in their pedagogy, right? So, and, and you know, was, was in that sense violating the legislator thought some kind of First Amendment balance principle, or whatever it might be, mm-hmm. and they got a letter from North Carolina. Got a letter from the education department. If that's how you're going to use it, um, then then it raises serious concerns. Um, I'm actually the, the co-chair of a First Amendment committee on our campus at William and Mary. I think we do very well in terms of, you know, fires rating and other metrics in terms of protection for free speech. Yeah, I
0: think William & Mary is a green light. uh, It's a green
1: light. I'm very proud of that. But of course, you can always do better. And so we were going back and we're looking at our policies and trying to find out if there are ways to, you know, make them better in terms of, and this was not in response to the executive order, it came before that. We just thought it was a good time to sort of take a look and make sure that we could maybe expand free speech rights and and people's opportunities to speak in in terms of public space and those Mm -hmm. sorts of considerations. Make sure our policies aren't vague or overbroad, those sorts of things. So it's a really uh, valuable thing to do uh, to go back and review uh, your, your free speech policies. It's amazing that there are still speech code provisions um, embedded, uh, given that the courts have routinely invalidated them on vagueness and overbreadth grounds. Um, but they're out there. They just they sort of took a different form or morphed into something else. So You sort of have to keep fighting uh, some of those battles.
0: Well, moving forward, because we need to wrap up here, this is flown by, what do you think the lasting impact of these, what, three-plus years, or three years almost, have been and will be uh, if the administration wins another term?
1: Um, I, I think the the impact um, of the three years, and, of course, it, it could be worse if, if there's another term in, in, the, in the First Amendment sense, is sort of the the damage to norms, which is true in in other contexts as well, not just the First Amendment. Um, But the notion that you can publicly and transparently in this vitriolic way attack the press and individual reporters, make them subject to potentially hostile actions at political rallies, um, that you can threaten your critics with um, the use of executive power, you know, revoke security clearances mm. of prior officials because they criticize you, um, and threaten lawsuits against your critics, I, I think all of that cumulatively poses a significant danger of damaging a culture of dissent. It is already hard enough to be a dissent. This is why I dedicated the book to dissenters. Uh, it's difficult work uh, to put yourself out there and, and be a dissenter. And when you create a climate like this, And not just from the government's perspective, but from the the population's perspective, you're just making it increasingly harder uh, to speak up. Um, I am optimistic to the extent that you do still see people doing exactly that. So when the Muslim ban in its first iteration came out, people flooded airports. Uh, There have been, you know, uh, March for Life marches. Uh, There have been others, you know, since uh, the president was elected. So I think we still do have, you know, uh, some notion that dissent is important, um, that people are going to continue pushing back, but you wonder about their exhaustion level. Um, a couple of reporters and, and op-ed uh, personalities have said, "Well, why don't we see mass public protests in light of the impeachment hearings that are going on now?" And part of the explanation may be that people are just worn down. Um, they're worn down from the saturation of the president and the presidency. Uh, the flooding of the airwaves is literally sort of drowning the body politic, um, and I do worry about that. Yeah, one it of takes the takes energy.
0: Well, one of the critiques of your book could be that you know, at the same time as you do see attacks on the press, I, you know, my short lifetime, I've never seen a press so robust. I mean, it feels as though they're doing better financially than they have in a long time. And uh, also you just see more reporting uh, than you have uh, perhaps in recent memory. It just seems as though the press is bringing a more critical eye to the workings of the federal government than they were than say the Obama administration. That could just be because of the idea, the natural ideological makeup of the press.
1: Um, Yeah, I, I think, um, You know, the personal attacks to that extent haven't worked. Mm -hmm. Um, If anything, they've emboldened reporters to go out and investigate more, and that's a good thing. Um, There are serious issues looming with regard to, you know, national security and confidentiality. Um, There's the potential prosecution of Julian Assange. Uh, and that that indictment came down after I turned in my manuscript. But it's a potentially very important First Amendment case, if it ever happened, how
0: they justify it. Right.
1: Exactly. And so press rights could be on the block uh, in that sense. And for the press, I, I don't think they can be completely worn down. But again, there might be a sort of exhaustion point with the press as well. I don't think this uh, playbook that Trump has pretty successfully deployed um, is going to be lost on future politicians, uh, even democratic ones. Potentially, they've started to attack the press for its biased coverage. You know, Tulsi Gabbard sued Google. Um, you know, so I think to the extent that this has been even marginally successful, other politicians are going to keep at it. And so I hope the press can withstand it. I, I, do, I take your point that they are financially maybe even better off. Um, at least some of the outlets. Um, in a Trump era, um, I don't think the Trump era ends when Trump
0: leaves. Is there anything, as a final question here, discreet, uh, or maybe not discreet, that you think the administration has done to bolster First Amendment protections?
1: Um, I I mean, I think I mentioned, you know, their their legal filings in the campus speech area. Mm -hmm. I I guess I would point to that as... um, certainly, at least from one perspective, supporting the speech rights of students. Now, of course, that's a controversial area, and people say, well, yes, but to the damage of you know, quality and dignitary interest on campus.
0: Yeah, we didn't get into the hate speech discussion. We did not. <laughs> I've, I've a really discussed it debate. dozens of times on the show. but
1: Yeah, and so we could talk about that just for a whole show, obviously, but I, I guess I would point to that in an effort to sort of find something, like you said, discreet Um, And maybe, you know, looking back on this, you know, years hence, um, it could be that it it created a more robust culture of dissent um, because people, you know, resisted and persisted and kept at it and kept filling the streets and protesting. I mean, look, if you look at how the Affordable Care Act episode went down, um, the likelihood is that without those public outbursts, um, they might have repealed it. And so there is still power in dissent, and not just on social media, but in real places.
0: Yeah, well, on the flip side of the Affordable Care Act, I mean, the Affordable Care Act, the passage of it, if I recall correctly, gave uh, rise to the the Tea Party movement, too. So you saw it kind of on the other hand, um, that it seems to be that things that the government do still animate people to get out there, whether you agree with them or not. So uh, Professor Timothy Zick... Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Again, the book is The First Amendment in the Trump era, and it is out now, correct? Correct. Thank and, you for having me. Yeah, yeah, I really appreciate it. This podcast is hosted and produced and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by my colleague, Aaron Reese. Uh, you can learn more about So to Speak by following us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk or liking us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. As always, we take feedback at so to speak at the fire.org. And if you're interested attending that live recording of our hundredth episode here in Washington, D.C., I believe it'll be between 3 and 5 p.m. on December 4th, uh, please shoot me an email at so to speak at the fire.org. And I will let you know if we are doing a live in-studio audience and put you down on the list. If you enjoyed this episode, however, you can consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Those reviews help us attract new listeners to the show. And as always, until next time, thanks again for listening.